Welcome back to Investing 404, the podcast by amateur investors for amateur investors. I'm Gov and I have Chris here with me. We've both been investing for over a year and we'd like to give an insight on how we analyze companies for investment. All right, guys, today we're talking about Alibaba and only Alibaba. So if you're not interested in that company or maybe Chinese stocks in general, then this is not the right episode for you. We'll go through the usual structure, uh, the business units that Alibaba has and the you know different subsidiaries they own then go into some positives and some negatives and risks for the future and then give our summary. Right, Gov, where should we start? Let's go into what Alibaba really is, Chris. Alibaba, uh, money-making machine. (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, This is a company that's got a few different business lines that we're going to go into, but has seen insane growth year over year. Um, And is really poised to become one of the biggest companies in the world. Yeah. So, Chris, which business line should we go into first? E-commerce? Should we do e-commerce? I'm, I'm pumped about e-commerce. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do e-commerce because that's how the company started. Jack Ma founded Alibaba, I think, with 17 friends. <laughs> I don't know even if I would have 17 people I would like to found a company with, but he found 17 <laughs> people he would like to found the company with in his apartment in 1999. And he realized back then that the big competition isn't within China. The big competition are the other players coming out of Silicon Valley, like eBay, Amazon. So their main thing from the beginning was to have, number one, the Chinese government on their side. And we'll come to that later in the risks because (laughs) he's messed that up recently. Um, And number two was just become the main place in China, that one domestic entity that no one looks around. If you think uh, you have a potential customer base of 1.4 billion, uh, it's a good place to start, probably, (laughs) right, Chris? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And let's let's talk about the e-commerce, right? Um, So Alibaba, funnily enough, is not uh, the main website. So they are split into three or four. You could you could call it four because AliExpress is for you know global retail, but you have Tmall, which is a B two C platform that focuses on reselling premium products to more wealthy uh, Chinese market. Then you have Taobao, which is like customer to customer. They back then competed with eBay and forced eBay pretty much completely out of the Chinese market. So Taobao is the Chinese equivalent to eBay. And then you have Alibaba, which actually in China is just a B2B, so business-to-business trade that's going on. So within Alibaba, you have these three channels of e-commerce that is essentially a mix of eBay, Etsy, and I guess Amazon in parts, which is very interesting how they've all split that up into multiple brands. Yeah, exactly. And all together, right, forms this sort of core sort of commerce, e-commerce platform that they have grown significantly, right? Like if we think about the company as a whole, the company as a whole has around 25 billion or so of free cash flow, of which the, it's just staggering if you think the core commerce, the core commerce has grown 33% or so. Right, and the direct sales, the new retail and direct sales have grown over like 100% in the last like year, which is just insane numbers. I mean, we're not talking um, changing from one sale to two, right? This is billions and billions of dollars. So um, 
growing at that scale just shows you how well they've connected with the Chinese population, especially during lockdown and so on. Exactly. And to put that into uh, some more figures, you know, 58% of all online retail sales in China is done through one of the Alibaba platforms. So it's 58% of the market. Amazon is nowhere near that in, in the US because there's so many other competitors. And then they have 755 million active users. That's twice the population of the US and nearly the population of Europe of active users, right? Mind blowing. <laughs> it literally is. <laughs> the crazy thing about that is you think about like right at the beginning to have a vision of having that many people <laughs> buy things on your platform. It takes a lot of vision uh, to, to try and build. Uh, but the beauty about building that is now that infrastructure is built in and now adding a, a million new users and so on um, is okay. So the, the growth potential as they carry on adding more users, the system will be pretty easy to do. Uh, obviously, they're going to need to have sizable new entrants or people just to be a lot richer to, to, to sustain this level of growth. What's also interesting, you know, with their brand power and with just the sheer market share, they've created their own days like Amazon have with Amazon Prime or Cyber Monday. And their equivalent, the Singles Day, is creating two times more revenue than Black Friday, Prime Day and Cyber Monday together. All those days together, Alibaba makes twice the amount of money on that one day, which is Singles Day in China. That might be one of the smartest commercial moves I have ever heard of. <laughs> just going, we're just going to create a day where we celebrate, you know, and just call it Singles Day. And people just flock to the idea and just spend all their money on that day, right? It's unbelievable. Just commercially, just to such a... Uh, genius stroke and also if it gives a sense of something that's theirs right like uh, valentine's day and all these other commercially uh, created days are all days from the west so having something that's their own uh, gives another sort of like more buy-in um, local customers but i presume chris like that 58 percent that you mentioned of the market uh, how do you see that? Do you see that changing uh, in their favor or against them? No, that's that's a good question because I think um, it's probably one of my biggest negative points and that is that Alibaba has been overtaken by the business to consumer sales. So that's just one segment by JD.com that are very closely aligned to Amazon's business model. Alibaba isn't actually as close aligned to Amazon as you would think. Alibaba is more closely aligned to eBay, where Alibaba doesn't actually own any warehouses and therefore doesn't have a full logistics network. That is all done by those third-party sellers or other companies. Whereas JD.com and Amazon, they own the end-to-end -end experience. So from the platform to the logistics, you know, Amazon owns a huge fleet of planes and drivers and trucks. And Alibaba doesn't have any of that, which is partly a good thing because they have higher margins than Amazon and can scale up and down a lot easier. But they lose those customers when things go wrong, like in Corona times, 
when logistics companies had struggles with all the orders and when there were delays. JD.com, on the other hand, could still promise their one-day, same-day deliveries because they owned the logistics network. So it's interesting to see how the corona effect cascades down to today, whether JD.com has really taken a big chunk out of Alibaba or whether customers just return back to their usual uh, experience they're used to from these other websites that Alibaba owns. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, Chris. Uh, what I would say was like when I think of Alibaba, um, and you're right, your explanation there was very clear on like the, we perceive it to be the sort of Amazon of China, but it's it's trying to play a slightly different role when it comes to uh, buying and selling. Um, but having said that, it's not a, a, a name that we hear every day, right? And what I mean by not hearing every day, I mean, I've never bought anything that's from Alibaba. I don't know anyone that I speak to who's bought anything on Alibaba. And you're right in the sense that your your uh, the target audience is slightly different, but their international purchases must be way lower, right, than something like an Amazon, right? I th I yeah, and like the in and the international investment is probably where, like you mentioned earlier, they're trying to like expand out into global markets, right, and become a global player and try and feed in everywhere. And that is an it's an exceptional point on like potential growth um, is taking these learnings into these huge markets and taking it elsewhere, like the Indias of the world, right? Um, just to grow their own sort of portfolio and revenue generation activities. And that's where Amazon has been so strong, right? Going into new markets and just dominated from the outset. Uh, and I think Alibaba is struggling a little bit. Uh, I think only 9% of their revenue is coming from outside of China, which is not a lot at all. And I think they've even been banned in, in India. Is that right, Goff? They've been banned, all the products. Um, so Correct, yeah. Yeah, Indian was going to be another one of their key growth drivers. And then in Africa, they own a couple of other e-commerce platforms, but not the leader by any stretch. So I think international trade is probably one of the big problem childs they have uh, right now. Right, Gov, let's go into some of these other uh, companies and subsidiaries that Alibaba owns because it's crazy. Uh, it's almost like we have a Berkshire Hathaway here. Um, <laughs> with all the different ownership stakes they have. <laughs> Just buying everything, yeah. Uh, for sure, for sure. Um, and, and the subsidiaries are sizable, which is, um, I mean, if we had to go and start mentioning every single one, I think this podcast would take a day, right? It's pretty incredible. <laughs> uh, but I, I want to focus on uh, the subsidiary that is part of the Alibaba group called uh, Aliyun or like the Alibaba Cloud. And the, the Alibaba Group, so whilst its parent company is based in, like, I think it's like Hangzhou in, in China, right? Um, international operations of Alibaba Cloud and Aliyun's in Singapore. And we'll come to some of the negatives later on in terms of the structure of Alibaba itself and how this potential, uh, uh, how, sorry, conflict with the government could have multiple areas of weaknesses for Alibaba as a company. But... Uh, as a, as the cloud uh, service, it offers everything from sort of data storage to like big data processing, anti-DDoS protection, all the standard sort of um, um, cloud provisions that uh, these like play other players play right in the market. And I think we covered a bit of that in uh, the Amazon episode where we 
uh, dug deep into what like sort of AWS is and so on, right? So um, interesting to see that area of the business also grow significantly. I think it's around 60% year over year cloud computing revenue growth. Um, and whilst the, the Asian markets are slightly less mature when it comes to sort of cloud use um, and growth in cloud use, but it just shows you that there's white space and some potential here that uh, Alibaba just can push through, right? That that cloud revenue driver is probably some of the number one reasons why people invest in Amazon, Microsoft, Alibaba, because it's just crazy money-making machines. <laughs> and they can scale that up really well. And as Goff said, we, we explained that in the Amazon episode, how once you have the hardware, um, just putting more people onto that hardware uh, and scaling it up and making more revenue from existing hardware is, is you know, the best business model you can have. Again, a fact on this, Alibaba is already the number three biggest provider after Microsoft and Amazon. And they're still growing by 60%, right? This is not a small cloud provider. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, just again, it's these numbers are mind blowing as growth, right? I mean, you take any of these sort of Fortune 500 companies or the FTSE 100 companies, all of their subsidiary areas of growth is all like if you have like 10%, 15% growth, that's amazing. And here we're talking 60%, uh, which is just, un I, I think it's just phenomenal to like even put that into perspective. The next area I think I'd love to get your views on is its investments into these strategic businesses. So whether that's like, I I, I'm going to butcher all the names. So if you've got anyone from Asia <laughs> listening, um, please know it's coming from a, a, a good place. But uh, there's a, um, I think it's Kainiao, which is the, the smart logistics network that they've invested heavily onto. So there's the that which is sort of logistics based then they, they've tapped into new whole new sectors with sort of electric vehicles to real estate to even music i think they've invested heavily so uh what are your thoughts in it's sort of building its profile into multiple different sort of uh industries per se rather than just sticking to a conventional sort of build what you're good at and grow what you're good at what are your thoughts on that yeah they're doing pretty much what any good investor does and diversify. <laughs> um, no, it's it's interesting. And, you know, some things have s taken me by surprise and others I think were straightforward, like the logistics. And I think it's uh, Tsai Niao. Um, that's my... Uh, that's, 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 that's your take on it. Yeah, that's, that's your pronunciation compared to um, mine. Uh, that, that made perfect sense, you know, doing some of the logistics for some companies. Um, and I think Ali Mama, which is their marketing platform, because same as Amazon, they don't just earn from people buying and selling, they earn a lot of money through the advertising on their different platforms. And Ali Mama is managing all the different platforms and the marketing and the search uh, results. And maybe the most exciting part of this whole empire, and I know there's there's others with you know travel platforms and AI stuff and the Netflix equivalent and you've mentioned Ali Music. It's crazy. And they even have they even have loads of US startups on their books like Snapchat, Lyft. They have small stakes in all of these small, small players. But the thing that was the most exciting in my eyes is Ant Financial. Uh, 
maybe one of the reasons why the stock has plummeted uh, suddenly because Ant Financial, which is like a, uh, yeah, yeah, fintech is probably the fairest word. Yeah, uh, exactly. Fintech exactly that. that is kind of in the same space as PayPal, MasterCard and other players, but all of them combined into one uh, small app or small, small business. And it allowed the Chinese consumer to completely skip any sort of credit card, debit cards. They went straight from cash to mobile payments. If you've ever been to China, you will realize that every store just has these QR codes. And essentially what you do is use your, uh, I don't know, Alipay or WeChat app to pay for things. So no one even needs card readers anymore. They just use these QR codes. And it's really sophisticated. It's actually really good for both the seller and the buyer. But Ant Financial, which was supposed to be the biggest IPO ever with, I think, $60 billion. So the biggest company that's ever newly listed on the stock exchange was canceled due to, uh, I guess, Jack Ma kind of upsetting the government and the fact that uh, new regulations have come in a week before the IPO was due to be scheduled, which is probably on purpose by the Chinese uh, regulators. And and we'll approach that topic uh, in more detail in a second. I just wanted to put in the scale that Ant Financial has. So I think PayPal has around 200 million subscribers or active users. Ant Financial has 800 plus million. So about four or five times the size of PayPal in that regards. Uh, Mastercard has about 2 billion cardholders. So maybe half of Mastercard. Uh, the number of transactions, MasterCard does about 11 billion, uh, whereas Ant Financial does 30 billion. So much, much bigger than MasterCard in that regards. And PayPal only does 1 billion transactions, so you know, not even close to it. Uh, with that, Ant Financial also offers insurances, uh, stock market services, you know, all the likes that traditional banks did as well. So Gov, pretty, pretty impressive, right? They have a financial services arm here that is probably as valuable as something like MasterCard and PayPal together, uh, just with you know the amount of users and transactions and volume and extra services. It's just incredible the way they've diversified, as you said. Yeah, agreed, Chris. Um, and and I think I think you touched on a few there, but I think that's a very good segue for us to go into the, our negative viewpoints on uh, Alibaba right now, right? Uh, and I, I think I touched on it earlier, but in my eyes, the, the fragile relationship that Alibaba has with the Chinese government is the biggest risk that they face, right? And that comes directly, uh, there's some aspects of that that come directly from Jack Ma himself, right? I think Jack Ma openly criticized the Chinese government on this sort of pawn shop mentality uh, on a conference. Uh, which uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys uh, listening would be aware, you know, Jack Ma suddenly disappeared and the stock plummeted <laughs> uh, to also the, uh, before that, the Chinese government blocking, like Chris just mentioned, the IPO that was coming out uh, and of the Ant Group. Uh, and it's it just shows you the tumultuous nature of where the business is and how much control China really want to have, right? Um and for me, that's the biggest negative. So let, let's look at the structure of Alibaba in a second as a holding company. The parent company isn't China itself, 
But the holding company, the Alibaba Holding Group, that has around 10 to 15 various different um, holding groups across different locations from Hong Kong to Cayman Islands to, I mean, I mean, a significant portion of it, of their money flows through the Cayman Islands, right? And the fact that this is international arm and a lot of transactions going through some international areas, that leaves them very open to any potential jab that the government may have. If they go, okay, uh, companies can't have more than X percent of money flow through international entities, suddenly the company, Alibaba as a group, has to restructure to be able to fit that regulation. And the Chinese government can do that. It, it will take years for something like that to pass in the UK or in the US or something like that. But in China, it can happen in a flash, right? And it can that can really harm them. Couldn't agree more. I think that's the biggest negative point around Alibaba, the unpredictability of what the political party in China is going to do. And they have all the power there's no opposition that can block anything. So whatever they want to put through, <laughs> will get through. Exactly. Um, and as Goff just said, those those stocks that we buy are actually not the real Alibaba stock. They're just ADRs, so right issues. But I don't want to go into the detail now. If you have questions, um, let us know and we can do it in a learning segment. But essentially, the Chinese government and the Chinese law says no foreigner is allowed to hold uh, uh, parts of a Chinese company so at any point in time the Chinese government could just say "Oop, everything you have there is worthless because it's as per Chinese no law not allowed to have any ownership in Chinese companies that's why uh, most companies like VW, Nike and all of these need to have partners in China that they can work with they're not allowed to buy up a Chinese company in that sense. That's one of the biggest risks and one of the biggest issues with holding these Chinese stocks overall. Saying that, saying that the Chinese government by no means wants to upset everyone else in the world and bring a bad light to China. So the fact that they would execute on that law, on the fact that you're not really supposed to have ownership in Chinese companies is unlikely. So the risk is, you know, low to medium in that sense. And then um, let me get to the, the the second biggest point. So number one, why the stock crashed by about 10 to 15 percent was the cancellation of the Ant Group IPO, which was due to Jack Ma criticizing the government and, you know, new regulation coming in suddenly a week before the IPO. Okay, fair enough. They can do that. <laughs> That's perfectly legal. That was the first crash. The second crash then came from the new investigations they've launched against these monopoly companies, especially Alibaba and Tencent. And these laws are just anti-monopolistic. So Alibaba, for example, had rules in there where if you shop on Alibaba.com, you can't also be listed on any other uh, website. And, you know, the typical forcing of uh, sales to other smaller companies and all, all of this business, right? Which is, which is surprising and not surprising because if you think about it, and I've done a bit of reading around this, China has been very protective of the Chinese economy to outsiders. So other competitors like Google, Amazon couldn't really come in and they've really all struggled and failed. But within China, they've let these massive monopolies just grow and become bigger um, than anything we have in the West. Tencent and Alibaba pretty much own half of the Chinese economy. And that's not even an exaggeration. 
And the Chinese political party let that go on for 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 a very long time. And Jack Ma had a good relationship with the government, and you know everything was fine. And now suddenly, after the criticizing, he has disappeared, as Goff said, and a lot of controversy is around that. But really, he's just staying low, right? And he's probably been told that you know if you say the wrong things, then we'll we'll investigate you and uh, go against you uh, personally, which he doesn't want, obviously. So he's just staying low, really. But, um, you know, these new regulations bring a whole different risk to Alibaba as a company. I think we have three options that I've seen from different analysts. Number one is they get a small fine and kind of like a slap on the wrist. Perfect. No impact and Alibaba will bounce back to become, you know, the, that one conglomerate that they are in Asia. Number two is maybe some forced sales, a small breakup of an individual part. Also not a big issue but a risk for the future, whether they could keep their monopoly power. And then the third one, which would be the biggest impact, is if they're being broken up and some of their businesses are really being decimated in their size. That would be the nuclear options that, that the Chinese government could put on Alibaba, which is very unlikely because, again, Alibaba is one of their shining stars, one of their companies they can put forward in any discussion. You know, we are one of the best... Uh, governments and one of the best political structures because we have companies like Alibaba and Tencent. So uh, you might have to read around the subject and make your own opinion. But I think option one and three are unlikely. It's probably going to be uh, like a pretty hefty fine and some new rules of what they can and can't do in the future. Yeah, potentially, Chris. Um, I don't know how much I agree with that. But um, we, we've mentioned this previously on similar actions happening in the U.S., um, with Facebook, with Amazon, with some of these like large companies trying to are on like trying to become like a, a, a monopoly, right? And the mon monopolistic sort of intent uh, behind their actions. And maybe I think we covered it in a couple episodes ago where we talked about how uh, some of these big companies in the U.S. could get broken out into smaller entities, right? Themselves. Now. Whilst I think that in the U.S. could take time and you could have various different uh, um, potential solutions, etc. Um, Alibaba and where it is today, like Chris said, on this like sort of huge conglomerate, that allows China a, a very good opportunity to correct how it wants its super rich to behave. If you don't know, China's got more billionaires than the U.S. and like India combined. Right. I think it's like 500 billionaires or something. Uh, and and that's a that's a lot one of money. And two, that's a lot of power. Some of these guys potentially control. It provides a wonderful opportunity for the president and for the government as a whole to impose its view on how big businesses should run. Jack Ma's comments and so on. All of that is a wonderful excuse to really drill down how they want these huge companies to behave and how they see they want the economy to progress, right? So I, I see a lot more swift change and I see a lot more sort of stricter outcomes with it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Goff. And I'd like to throw in one more before we finish, and that is the delisting, which was another <laughs> another reason for the stock to plummet by about 10-15% because uh, the US and especially uh, our good friend Donald Trump uh, tr who 
threatened to put uh, Tencent, Alibaba, and a few other Chinese companies on the blacklist, which would mean uh, US stock exchanges could no longer buy and sell these companies. So specifically the NASDAQ, where two of them are listed. And that brought about a lot of uncertainty. And, uh, you know, people were very worried what's going to happen with my Alibaba stock. Would it be worthless or not? So a lot just pressed the sell button and got out of it. Um, I think the finance minister, and that's come from the Wall Street Journal, the finance minister has put a stop to it. And rightly so, because uh, if if you look at Vanguard and BlackRock, who uh, issued the iShares ETFs, it would be a huge hit. And we're not talking about a few uh, million, we're talking about a couple hundred million of hit to these uh, big ETF issues because they own so much in these two companies through, you know, the China ETFs for emerging markets, through uh, world ETFs, um, that they couldn't just delist these without having a big impact on actually the US economy. It seems the finance minister has put a stop to it. So it looks like uh, there's less of a threat of that happening in the next uh, year or so, which is positive. And then especially with Biden coming in, um, people assume that he will have a better, more friendly relationship with China going forward. With that then, Chris, um, what's your view? Um, are you in Alibaba right now? Would you invest into Alibaba? Um, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I've been in since uh, mid last year when it was still at $200. So for me, I'm still actually in profit, even with all these crashes. The company seems to still be worth more than it was uh, mid last year, which is interesting. And that shows you exactly how the stock market goes from undervalued to overvalued very quickly. Um, if you compare to things like Amazon, you know, this stock is very, very cheap. I think it's a PE ratio of around 25, which makes it almost fairly valued. You know, PE ratio of 25, that's, that's companies like Unilever and Nestle that grow about 1% or 2% a year. Um, a P ratio of 50 would be more applicable or maybe even higher. I think Amazon's at 100. So just to put that in perspective, um, people pay about four times more for an Amazon stock than they are for an Alibaba stock uh, with similar growth rates going on in the future. And arguably, you could say Alibaba has more room to grow with the Chinese economy coming up, more middle-class Chinese and, and overall more growth in the emerging markets where Alibaba is positioned. And then if you look at the analysts, they almost threw out recommended as a buy. So no one seems to be very put off by what's happening right now. Not that that should you know, give you any hope because analysts have been wrong about Wirecard or you know, other companies as well. Um, so if, if you're happy with the risk that's going on, I'm still in it. Um, I'm happy with the risk. I've put a stop down in case it really crashes one day. And uh, apart from that, I think this is one I'm just going to hold for the next five to 10 years and, and see where we are because it is very cheap, but it has big risks. Um, Goff, what's what's your take? Because I think you are not in, right? Yeah, I have been in the past, Chris. Um, I'm just not in anymore. Um, and that's kind of to do with my own sort of portfolio rebalancing. Uh, but my general thoughts on Alibaba is I think it's a great stock, like Chris mentioned. I think potentially, you wouldn't maybe call it undervalued. Uh, but if you just think about it, it's market caps of like 60, 600, sorry, 670 odd billion uh, with free cash flows of about 30, uh, 25 to 30 billion. I mean, so those sort of conversions are pretty good when you compare it to the likes of the Amazons of the world, right? So 
I don't think it's, uh, I, I think as a stock itself, I think it's probably pretty good, but I really dislike the climate it's in. I really dislike the potential political drama that might, that surrounds it. And I really dislike the implications of whatever the, uh, the Chinese government puts out and how quickly that might impact Alibaba. I'm not in Alibaba right now and I don't think I'm going to be in either. That's fair. Um, and I think that's exactly the point why no one should ever put all their money in Alibaba. <laughs> be well diversified and don't have too much in it because the risk is high. Uh, that, that reminds me of exactly what I said about Bitcoin. <laughs> Similar regulatory <laughs> yeah. threat, right? <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's just your like mantra for life, Chris. Uh, <laughs> I think you also mentioned <laughs> that in the Tesla. Yeah, I don't think that was also your Tesla episode. Uh, so I think I think that's just your mantra for life. Um, right, I think that rants about uh, today's podcast. Thank you for listening in. Um, if you'd like to hear more or you've got ideas for the future, hit us up on our Instagram page at investing404. Uh, looking forward to hearing from you. Do you know uh, the thing came out today about Trump, how he's made th over 30,000 false claims in the last four years? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's like 20. It's like 20 a day, man.